Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. Well, that's kind of an interesting thing. You know, we had a chapter towards the end of the book about, uh, you know, two similar cases, two different outcomes. And this was sort of a, you know, this was the chapter added after we thought we had finished the book, but then these cases popped up and they seemed very relevant. So we added, added them. My impression was reading about this in the, in the paper, seeing these two cases move forward. They were basically moving forward in through the, the jury trial overlapping and the verdicts came out somewhat close to each other and to me it was like well why was kyle rittenhouse found innocent whereas these guys that they killed ahmaud arbery here in georgia were found guilty and so you know we went through all the details of what had happened in the cases both cases and then and then i asked ann you know, my sister the lawyer to give some analysis and she'd been commenting on these cases on core tv and, uh, you know, in the media as, as they progressed. And kind of the, the analysis was that Kyle Rittenhouse was carrying an assault weapon, you know, which is legal in the state of Wisconsin. And he had answered this, this call on Facebook for citizens to go out and protect these businesses that were, you know, the night before had been damaged by protesters. This is a protest that, er- that erupted in, in Wisconsin in the aftermath of, uh, a young black man being shot by the police, sort of typical of what's been what had been going on around the country that year. So he went out with this assault rifle and, you know, was standing near a used car lot. And basically there are a couple different people, you know, they started chasing him and one one guy threw a, a bag at him and grabbed for his gun. So you know, there's a, in the state of Wisconsin, you know, there's a self-defense rule. So you could argue that, you, you know, young people shouldn't be allowed to walk the streets with assault weapons, but the law stated that it, w- it was legal to carry an assault weapon in public in Wisconsin at the time. And then the law said that there's a stand your, stand your ground defense that if someone hits you first, you have the right to self-defense and that includes shooting them if you have a gun in your hand. So, all three of the cases, the people that were either killed or wounded, the jury found, and I think probably correctly, that he had been acting in self-defense. But in Georgia, what happened is that Ahmad Arbery was a black, you know, as it was called into the 911 in Brunswick, Georgia, there's a black male running down the street. And then the, the operator said, well, did he commit a crime? And then he goes, there he goes. He's he's run down the street again, you know. so. He had been walking through at a construction site of a half-finished house, but I kind of looked into the law on this, and if you don't put a sign up that says no trespassing, it's actually not illegal to walk through a half-finished construction site that's not, you know, that's not closed. And he didn't steal anything. He didn't, you know, maybe just got a drink of water. Um, So then the McMichael father and son saw him running down the road. They called 911. And um, and then they took off after him with their pickup truck and a gun and ended up shooting him. So the, you know, the prosecutor said it's not self. And they claimed that they made a citizen's arrest of someone that was committing the crime. Well, no crime had been committed. 
And the prosecutor said, it's not self-defense if you started it. So if you go running after someone with a, with a gun who's running down the street and then there's an altercation that occurs where, you know, the other person gets shot, then you're liable for that. So they were, in fact, two different cases. But, of course, you know, the, the racial aspects of protests and the aftermath of a police killing of a young black male. And then in this case, a, you know, Gregory McMichael was a retired police force from Brunswick, Georgia. And he had, you know, a number of connections with the with the prosecutor, the DA, and the in the police force. But he wasn't an active duty of police officer. But um, you know, it was another high profile case of blackmail being being killed. And um, but the, in my opinion, the you know the jury verdicts were cracked in both cases. Oh, I agree, absolutely agree. I I, I think you know one of them. The, especially that Georgia case. I was actually, uh, it's interesting, watched a lot of that testimony. Um, I travel a lot for work. And so I was actually on a plane and I was just listening to the testimony and, and those guys that were chasing after uh, Maude Aubrey. It's like, for what? I mean, what you, you think you're justified in using legal, you know, lethal force in preventing a burglary? You know, it, it, there's no burglary that could justify that. And so I, I just kind of, um, to me, that, that case was a lot more cut and dry than the Rittenhouse case, because uh, although the Rittenhouse case to me seemed pretty cut and dry as well, it's, a, it's just the, uh, the circumstances of who the victim was versus who the aggressors were almost seemed flipped. So... Yeah, but if you, if you look at the media, you know, the media response to that, it was that was purely people making up their mind based on, you know, whatever, you know, kind of preconceived notions they had mainly about guns, you know, whether the right, what your opinion is about gun control and, you know, the so-called right to bear arms. So they weren't most, you know, most people were even in the media, people writing editorials, they were like, you know, he should be sent to prison or, without really even thinking about what the actual facts were in the case. And uh, it was, a, that was a total, you know, rush to judgment, if you will. And then Rittenhouse got this lawyer from here in, uh, in Atlanta, Lynn Wood, who, you know, uh, was famous for, you know, being one of the attorneys involved in the John Benet Ramsey case there in Colorado. But he, you know, in more recent times, he's been become a, a supporter of, ex-president Trump and, you know, kind of a QAnon believer and involved in a lot of the political aspects. And he be, became the, you know, started working pro bono, I think, for Kyle Rittenhouse. So it became a very political case right away. Although I don't think that Kyle Rittenhouse saw it that way necessarily. You know, he, I don't think he saw himself as a, involved in the, in the right-wing cause or anything. But anyway, that's, that's sort of how that, that played out. Yeah. No, my understanding is he was actually uh, protecting a, a family member's store. And uh, everything I read about it was uh, the the protesters and rioters had basically lit in a, one of those large dumpsters on fire and rolled it toward uh, his store. And that's when he basically, he stopped the, the dumpster and put it out. And that's when he was attacked by some of these guys that were trying to, you know, burn, burn the, the store down. And so, you know, it started from him just basically being, I don't know, 
a, a kid that was cleaning graffiti and was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But uh, the, the fact that he, he happened to have his long gun with him to me, that was, um, I mean, it, it's almost like he had every right to do that just like everybody has a right to protest. But you know, when, when somebody steps over the line and riots and then they're trying to cause a uh, destruction of, of property, you know, some, somewhere in there, there, there has to be a line drawn. And the interesting thing is where the law draws the line versus where the media and the social media and, you know, the opinion of the people that are receiving information, especially from the media, you know, those lines get really blurred. And to, to me, it was kind of like, you know, the initial reaction from especially the news reports and the commentary about the supposed facts versus what actually came out in the trial. To me, those were starkly different. Is, is that kind of how you saw it? Yeah. So, you know, my own personal opinion is I don't think that people should be, you know, I don't think it should be legal for private citizens to walk around the streets with assault rifles, but you know, that that's just my personal opinion. You know, the, the, the law in Wisconsin, you know, states that they can. So there were a number of, but within the social media, you know, there's, it became a divisive case because it kind of fell down to, you know, what people's viewpoint was on that particular question and, you know, there were a number of things that were said, like, well, he was dropped off by his mom, you know, who said, you know, have a good day, you know, go shoot some people or something. And that that was not the case. That was just one example of many kind of factual inaccuracies that, you know, that they were spread on, on the Internet. And the same thing happened with the Amanda Knox case. There were all kinds of whack-a-mole factoids that came out in that case, like that they had bought bleach and cleaned the area around the house to cover up their crime. There was no bleach. It, they produced this famous receipt that it finally it showed that it was a receipt for pizza. You know, that was, that was one example, but a lot of these things kind of became accepted as facts and were written into some of the books that people were writing about the case as facts when in fact, you know, they weren't facts. So, you know, the, 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 uh, one of the people, that was was killed in the Rittenhouse case was probably, in my opinion, manic because he would just gotten out of the hospital where he'd been um, admitted for a manic episode, and you know the way people said he was behaving was erratic. You know, so that that probably you know played a role, and then and then one of the other kids tried to hit him on the head with the skateboard. So so yeah, I mean, all of these cases you can you can find. And I'm sure that the when I started to look at the West Memphis Three, is like this is a real rabbit hole. This looks kind of familiar, <laughs> yeah. you know. That you have forums that are that have a, you know, the the internet gets divided into forums that are for uh, think that the person's guilt guilty or innocent. In the Meta Knox cases, we called the people that thought she was guilty the guilters, and then you had the you know Chancisti and et cetera. So it looks like there was a number of, um, you know, the West Memphis three was an ex example of that. And then there's that other case of the, of the, the girl that disappeared in that hotel in Los Angeles who ended up in a, in, in a water containing vessel at the top of the hotel. You may have heard about that. And there's a number of internet sleuths who were 
going over and over that there's a video of her in an elevator uh, shortly before she died. So that that sort of internet sleuthing and and you know teams of for and against internet forums it seems like it's here to stay. Yeah, well, and and also the video, you know, in today's in today's environment, uh, you know, there's there's so much uh, video that's out there, and and it's posted almost immediately. Well, in fact, some people are live streaming while stuff is happening. So. You know, the, yeah, the video to- video is really important. You know, in, in the Ahmad Arbery case, that the video didn't surface right away. You know, it was because yeah. some crackerjack lawyer that was advising the uh, not the McMichael father and son, but the um, the other the other guy who was eventually convicted. He said, "Well, you should make the video public so that people can see that it's not just a bunch of rednecks driving down the road with the." you know, Confederate flag, you know, in the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> Where, How he thought that that would help the case of these people is beyond <laughs> me. But uh, that's what happened. Yeah. Well, I I, I mean, it, it's amazing. A lot of the video, especially in, in I, I don't know what date it started really becoming, uh, you know, 2010, maybe somewhere around there. You know, I know that. Like, uh, let's see, Facebook actually came into existence in what, 2014? Yeah. Something like that. So, so it didn't and, play a role in the Amanda Knox case, which, which eventually resolved in 2015. So it's, I think it's really been since 2015 that, um, you know, that, that video started becoming, you know, more routine on phones. And so that's, that's when, you know, and video has really transformed a lot of these cases for good or for bad. You know, one thing about video is like in the George Floyd case, the video was posted online and people made an instant judgment. So Derek Chauvin didn't really have a chance to go to trial before, you know, people had already made up their mind that he was guilty. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was crazy. I, I was actually um, up in Minneapolis uh, training the Hennepin County crime lab up there and which is right in the middle of Minneapolis, right next to the, where the Vikings play. And I'll tell you that everything was boarded up. They had multiple layers of fencing and, and concertina wire around places. And, you know, you drive downtown and they were starting to board things up and they hadn't even chosen the jury yet. And, it, you know, let alone the, the actual, I, I think the week it was either the week that I was there or the week following it was jury selection and they were already, they were boarding things up because they, they just knew that pretty much no matter what the, the result was because so many people were so uh, emotionally uh, jacked up about everything that whether it was guilty or, or not guilty, the when by the time that even the, the case being presented the, as the facts were coming out and the facts were being presented of, of what actually happened, you know, there was a high potential of, of writing and, and things like that afterwards. And that a lot of that became, you know, just because of that initial video. And I, I, I agree. I, I don't think that officer had a chance to, um, I mean, they were going to convict him regardless. Yeah. It, it looked like that in the, uh, in the aftermath of the Rayshard Martin case, it was, uh, you know, someone that was, just to remind you, he was um, driving through the uh, 
he was sitting in the drive-thru at, at Wendy's in Atlanta and um, fell asleep in the drive-thru and he'd been drinking alcohol. And so when the police arrived and one thing followed another, he ended up getting shot and killed um, after he tried to evade the police. And there were riots, you know, there and, and the, that Wendy's was burned down. It was in a neighborhood of Atlanta called People's Town. And that site was temporarily occupied for two days. And and the mayor at the time, Keisha Lance Bottoms, just basically said, you know, don't go in, you know, just leave that place alone. And, and then a little girl ended up getting shot and killed with driving through the area with her mother, which is a, which is a tragedy. But it, during that time, you know, there were riots in downtown Atlanta and everything was boarded up. It looked like World War III. I, I don't know really what the answer is as far as uh, how how do you bring the level of emotion down and, you know, but e- even if you look at things, the psychological aspect of how many people now believe that uh, certain segments of society are the enemy. And it's, I, so I, I have a military background and, you know, in, in some of the studies that I, I have done, of different conflicts, one of the ways that people essentially become become capable of shooting another, you know, or killing another human being is they dehumanize that person, and a lot of that is is psychologically it's required for people to actually, you know, be able to force themselves to do it, and which is why throughout history you've you've been. You know, you look at people that were enemy of the United States, for example, you know, the, the Germans weren't Germans. They were Krauts and, and you know, on and on and on. And I, I think there's some of that same psychological, you know, dehumanization that is happening in the United States. And I, I, I think it's dangerous. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you could, you could point to this kind of div- this uh, rhetoric about Antifa versus the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters. And right there, you've got a conflict where people are dehumanizing the other side, but they're extreme extremes, right? So, you know, I don't think that most people believe that you should be able to rise up in arms against your the government if you feel like, you know, you didn't, you don't like the way things are going. You know, so that's an extreme view. But they've they've sort of created this antifa as anti-fascist is the you know the the enemy force that they're fighting against. I think probably both people in those extreme you know camps would view each other in a dehumanized way. You know that, and you can see that in a lot of the online rhetoric and whatnot as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting that I I I think the more that we actually talk about things the more we just evaluate it through communication and and especially you know back to your book i i think your book is going to be uh extremely enlightening to a lot of people that that will actually take the time to read it and i i again and just thumbing through it and seeing all the different cases that i think you highlight in and clearly you're bringing out a lot of a lot of threads a lot of um, common themes that are going to that are going to link these cases together. You know, I even saw OJ Simpson in there. So, you know, Michael Jackson, it's like, 
Geez, yeah, you know, you guys are covering uh, uh, a lot of really important cases, and if you can break these down and and see them how they how they came out, not only legally but also psychologically, and and how things um, uh, were approached from the societal aspect. I I think that's going to be a, a great a great book for you. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at the OJ case. That was a classic case of. Um, you know, a criminal proceeding that was affected by what was going on in society and, and social media. In that case, you know, he got a crack the dream team of lawyers, including Johnny Cochran and, and um, you know, and, and others. And what they did is they, 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 they um, created this, this theme about how he'd been the victim of a, of a racist cop. And that was uh, Furman, and um, he, he uh, and and so they they came up with this theme, and then they they, um, they created this article in the New Yorker magazine about how OJ had been been uh, the victim of racism, and it and it divided the country in that if you talk to people based on their race, they all had an opinion that most blacks thought that he was being victimized and most whites thought that he was guilty. And so they created this, this, um, this theme of the key of the case about it being about race. But then what they did is they, they got Furman who, who was a Los Angeles police officer who'd been involved in this group that was actually trying to prevent women from joining the Los Angeles police force. And a woman was a screenwriter was writing a, a screenplay about the story about, women trying to break into the Los Angeles police force. And she made all these, these tape recordings as background material for this movie that she was writing about that particular subject. And during those recordings, he made some racist com- and misogynist comments and used the N word. So what one of the uh, defense attorneys did is he got up there and he said, have you ever used the N word? And he said, no. And then they played back this recording. So that, what that did is that created an element of doubt in the jury's mind. And at the time that that occurred, that jury, that uh, trial occurred 20 years ago, you know, I thought that he was guilty. Like I, you know, I think a lot of the pe- people of my background and, you know, race, et cetera, would believed. But then when I saw the details of the case, I realized that, you know, they had done a very good job of defending him. And I changed my mind about, you know, whether or not I, believe that he probably did kill Nicole Brown Simpson, but I feel that the jury probably came up with the right verdict because I think there was enough, the way that it was presented, there was enough evidence there to create a reasonable doubt. And so the jury just has to operate on the evidence as it's presented to them. And, you know, there's another famous scene where um, the prosecutor gave OJ Simpson the glove that was found at the scene and asked him to put the glove in, glove on. And Johnny Cochran said, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Well, hello, it was a bloody glove. And what happens to a glove when it gets wet? It shrinks. Yeah. So OJ made this big scene about trying to put the glove on and it didn't fit. And then Johnny Cochran saying, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> well, heck, I mean... If, if I had blood on my glove, I wouldn't be able to put it on either. So that was a real misfire on the oh, yeah. on the on the oh. uh, prosecution side there. So Mar- Marcia that, Clark, yeah, Marsha yeah. Clark absolutely destroyed her entire case, and in result of that, her entire career over mm-hmm. that one move. 
I mean, that, that has to be one of the more famous jury, you know, court scenes ever when he's trying to pull that glove on. And I remember even way back then watching that on the news and I can't remember exactly what year that was, but I, I believe I was in high school when it happened and I was just like, that's crazy. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, and so that, that's a good example of, it illustrates several points that we make in the book. One is that what you see from the outside, your, your judgment based on viewing the facts from a distance can often be wrong. Number two, it illustrates the important role of, you know, what lawyers need to do to, you know, use social media, use the, the media, in this case, the article in the New Yorker to, you know, to promote their client's case. That's why you see a lot of lawyers out there on the sidewalk, basically grandstanding. And then, um, and then the other is just that, 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 you know, the juries have to look at the facts that are presented to them. And more often than not, they are making a, a correct decision based on the facts as presented. And in the case of OJ Simpson, you know, the, the prosecuting team just got out lawyered, you know, they, yeah. they just, oh, yeah. they just yeah, blew it. I, I, I think there were a lot of people that went into uh, defense law based on that, but it, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was really interesting. Uh, there's so many, so many uh, cases that you guys are highlighting. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to get into, you know, more of the depth of the book. And, and again, it's called justice in the age of judgment. And uh, I, I think uh, you guys have, have really nailed it on, on this one. I'm, I'm excited to, to read it uh, and, and actually see it come out And it. What you said, it comes out November 8th. Yeah. November 8th. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, one, so. one thing that, uh, that as you were talking just a, a minute ago, really hit home is, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the Salt Lake City here, you know, Utah area. And one of the, the big cases, especially that Anne is involved in, is that Susan uh, Cox Powell case. And I, I know they have a huge judgment against the state of Washington for endangering the two boys. But the case itself is so interesting because especially here in Utah, you know, everybody that doesn't fully understand, you know, exactly how the law works and what's actually required, not just to win a case, but, but even to make an arrest, you know, you have to have enough evidence to actually, you know, justify the arrest. And, and you, you can't just ar- arbitrarily arrest people. And because a, a lot of people were asking, well, you know, it's there's there's pretty good circumstantial evidence that Josh killed Susan Powell. You know why not arrest him, and then those two boys would have been still alive. You know if they had done that. And but the bottom line is, it, you know what you can surmise from the the evidence that's supposedly being presented, and then what you can actually prove in the in a court of law are two oftentimes two very, very different things. And if you, if you can't actually prove a case, the chance that a prosecutor is going to take a trial is, is pretty low. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, for one thing, they, they didn't have a body, you know, which mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily, you know, preclude the case. I mean, another, another case is Scott Peterson, you know, they couldn't find a body and they ended up taking him to trial. It, but the whole thing about circumstantial evidence versus, um, you know, fact-based evidence, you know, it, it's it kind of can go both ways because, you know, you can have fact-based evidence like a, a witness 
but we know, you know, based on research studies that witness identification can be, can be wrong, right? Especially when there's a crime involved, you know, there's all kinds of studies showing that people will look at the gun instead of the face of the person or that, you know, people will, you know, there's been numerous cases where five black males that look similar have been lined up and then, you know, someone's asked to identify based on those five males and there's been misidentification. There is a one, one case that was in the, in the news about uh, a, a woman who just sort of picked someone off the street and said, I think that was the guy that sexually assaulted me. And then 20 years later, it was proven, you know, based on, I think DNA that there's actually someone else, you know, so it was just the pure case of identification and there's so much weight placed on that. But the Susan Cox Powell, you know, of course they didn't find the body in the case of Scott Peterson, they didn't find the body right away. I can't remember if they eventually found some of the body pieces. I don't know if you oh, remember yeah, they, that. They, they, she washed ashore eventually. Yeah. But yeah. right away, right off, they, they, they couldn't find anything. But with Susan Cox Powell, that was, you know, that was a major, you know, stumbling block. And then, you know, just to remind people that, that, you know, she supposedly, they supposedly went hiking in the middle of a snowstorm. It was in Utah, right? Yeah. In, uh, yeah. in the mountains. Yeah. Supposedly and, well, out in the West Desert. And, yeah. And then um, with the these two, two, two toddlers that are age one and three, and it was the middle of the night. And, yeah. and uh, you know, they had, all had to go to work and daycare the next day. And then she disappeared. And then he's sort of like, well, you know, I don't know what happened to her. <laughs> but, yeah. But then eventually, he, uh, you know, they ended up in Puyallup, Washington, where um, the kids – you know, we're, we're living with family, but then the, the state of Washington allowed the kids to have, allowed, um, Josh Powell, the father to have visitation with, um, with the kids. And in one of the visits, he, he kind of shoved the social worker out the door, locked the door and then killed the kids and himself and lit the house on fire. So that yeah. was the, you know, that was a tragic case of the family of Susan Cox Powell, the entire family eventually exterminated. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, what I originally had Ann on, on the show to talk about that familicide or just going down that list of all the, the standard characteristics of, of men that, um, and it's more, mostly white males that uh, kill their family. And I'm like, yeah, checking the boxes. And I'm like, oh, I better <laughs> make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm not exhibiting any of these traits, but uh, you know, also it, it just, so interesting, you know, all of, all of these different, uh, aspects that you look at. And, you know, it's sad that there were so many red flags, particularly with that case that, uh, they just kind of ignored, but, you know, again, uh, looking at things from, uh, in, in hindsight, you know, of course the red flags actually mean something when in the, in the heat of the moment, you know, when you're actually right there, then, even though they, they might've been blaring red flags to one person, you know, a lot of times, uh, unfortunately people that are involved actually don't, don't pick those up. So. Well, in the case yeah. of Susan Cox Powell, she actually wrote a, a, a note and put it in a, I can't remember, maybe a safety deposit box saying if something happens to me, then Josh probably killed me. <laughs> something along yeah. those lines. <laughs> yeah. That's a fairly, fairly big red flag. And, and which is, <laughs> Which is why uh, the state of Washington is going to be on the hook for, uh, yeah, big settlement. So, and, and they should be. And frankly, that's um, there, there's no reason that they should have done a lot of the things that they did. So, and then you know, 
that's that's what the judicial system's all about is 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 uh getting the victim the justice that they deserve so well listen doug i've uh uh it's been fascinating and and we could go on and on for hours but um I think uh, let's have you and Ann on again uh, after you guys launch your book in November 8th. And yeah, in the yeah. In so the sometime meantime, in no- early in November would be fine. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd really enjoy that. So in the meantime, is there any kind of um, place that uh, people can go to uh, preview the book? Well, my my website is dougbremner.com, B-R-E-M-N-E-R.com. And so the link to the, you know, the book cover and then a link to all the places where you could pre-order the book or right on that page. And, and then a, a description of, um, of, you know, the context of the contents of the book. And then there's a link to my blog there. The blog is called before you take that pill.com. So I'll probably be writing about some of the individual cases over the next couple, next few weeks, um, especially as they relate to what's going on in the, you know, the current, current news. And, uh, so it'll be out in, in both the ebook and audio book as, you know, as well as hardcover. Fantastic. November 8th. All right. Well, we look forward to uh, November 8th and seeing that book again, it's uh, justice in the age of judgment by Ann and Doug Bremner. And so we'll put those links in the show notes. So everybody uh, make sure you click on that and go visit their site and, uh, leave it, leave a comment. So, Doug, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, we look forward to having you and Ann on in uh, November, December timeframe. Okay, great, Jared. Thanks a lot. Look forward to it. All right, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.